Welcome to the Focus Today podcast with Perry Atkinson. Well, welcome to uh, Focus Today. I'm your host, Perry Atkinson. And of course, we're all concerned about the, uh, the debt, maybe the national debt and our personal debt uh, in today's economy and just how much of a struggle it is to manage all that. What an honor to have with us today, Richard Vegg. He's the author of The Paradox of Debt, A New Pathway to Prosperity Without Crises. He also serves as the managing partner of the uh, uh, Gabriel Investments, and he has uh, previously served as the Secretary of Banking and Securities for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He's also the co-founder of two consumer credit card banks and an electricity and natural gas supply company, Energy Plus. He's busy. <laughs> By the way, his uh, website is richardvague.com. Richard, good to see you. How are you, friend? Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor to be on your show. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Uh, gosh, what's your 30,000-foot view of debt in America today? Well, it's high. <laughs> so, and I think one of the points that we try to make in this book is that for all the attention on government debt, private sector debt, household and business debt is a much larger total. Right now, private sector debt is about 42 trillion as compared to government debt of about 32 trillion. So really a lot of our focus and a lot of our, our woes come from that private sector debt. Can we manage this? Are we, are we heading for a, 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 a wall here? We're not headed for a wall at this particular moment. You know, you can tell that by looking at how quickly that debt rises in relation to GDP. And it, it grew extremely rapidly in the period from 2002 to 2007. Mortgage debt doubled from $4 trillion to $10 trillion in that period. That's why we had the global financial crisis. Today, it's high, but it hasn't been rising rapidly relative to GDP. So we have a problem, but it's kind of a slow bleed kind of a problem. It's a, it's a lot of folks struggling with debt. It's a slower pace of GDP growth because of that. I think that's the situation we have right now. Now, there's other countries that have other kinds of problems, but that's the U.S. issue right now. Let me just stick with the private debt just for a moment. Is there also been an increase in default? There's a little bit of an increase recently. We actually had a great improvement in those numbers during COVID because of all the federal and local relief programs. So, you know, things got a lot better, but now those have expired. And as of this month, as one example, the 30 million Americans that have student debt are gonna have to resume payment on that debt. So I would expect those numbers to, to be rising here currently and over the next year or so. So I guess what I'm trying to figure out, you're the pro here, Richard, how do we manage the fact that um, we, we need to borrow money to keep things going, but we can't afford it? <laughs> well, I think you've summed the problem up precisely. And we call our book, The Paradox of Debt for that very reason. Economic growth requires debt growth, and yet uh, it's the accumulation of debt that really drags us down over time. So the book comes up with any number of ideas on how to 
how to try to innovatively deal with the accumulation of debt, uh, because it is dragging the country down, especially the middle class. So where are we heading with this? Uh, What's the answer? Well, I think in the U.S., the answer is coming up with more productive ways, more creative ways to let households uh, wrestle with, successfully wrestle with debt. So, for example, in the area of student debt, you know, we propose a program where through community and civic volunteer work, folks could begin to get relief from their student debt and accelerate the payment more than they currently have. In the area of mortgage debt, we propose a program whereby folks could work with their lenders. We could change regulations to make it easier for folks to work with their lenders to get their principal and payments reduced where needed in exchange for giving the lender a little bit of the upside when the house is sold. We even think there's productive ways to kind of streamline bankruptcy laws to let folks that faced a medical emergency or an unexpected job loss get back to financial health more quickly and readily. Okay, a couple things there. Um, Do you think uh, bankruptcy laws have been misused? You know, I was in that industry for a long time, so I have deep familiarity with bankruptcy. And we've studied that very closely. And our view is, even though, of course, there is some abuse of bankruptcy laws, the vast majority, 90 plus percent of all bankruptcies relate to pretty much three things. Unexpected health care expenses. This is the the you know the the terrible case of cancer or heart disease that your family didn't expect and don't have proper coverage for uh, unexpected job loss is getting laid off because jobs got outsourced overseas or what have you and family disruption divorce primarily so you know it's not folks generally looking to take advantage of the system it's folks that are operating in good faith that have something that they weren't prepared for in their lives. It doesn't appear that bankruptcy carries the sting that it used to. Is that true? You know, I, I will say to you, you know, there's not quite the stigma that there once was, but bankruptcy is a very onerous thing. You know, as I mentioned before, I ran a, a bank where we had 70 million customers and we had, we faced a lot of bankruptcy uh, regularly, so we we studied it fairly deeply. This is a you know it may not be as stigmatizing as it once was, but it is still an extraordinarily difficult thing for most people. It really does ruin their lives for a period of time, and sometimes ruins their lives outright. And the, you know the folks try to get back to financial health, and there's I think certain things that could be changed to allow them to get back. Uh, more quickly. I'll give you one brief example. And the way bankruptcy laws are right now, folks can't make a deal with the car that they own just to continue to pay it off at current market value of that car. So they lose their car, which is, by the way, for many folks, a necessary thing to keep their job, to keep servicing that debt. I think that could be streamlined a little bit, let let folks meet that challenge more successfully. Where do you put the rise of interest rates in this equation? 
Well, I'm one of those who, who don't, does not really think the Fed needs to have raised interest rates as they have. You know, rates have gone up and, you know, a couple of years have gone up from effectively zero to effectively five and a half percent on the belief that we need that to combat inflation. And uh, yet we saw inflation come down last summer from nine percent to three percent at a time when interest rates were only two percent. So, you know, interest rates aren't really the solution. It's things like <clears throat> war and uh, COVID that have, have created this inflation in the first place. So I think uh, high interest rates uh, have been, have hurt the middle class quite a bit. And it's, it's something that I would like to see reversed at least somewhat. Well, thank you for saying that because I think, you know, talking about paradox, I'm just looking in our own backyard. We have a housing shortage and contractors are trying to meet that challenge. But if they're gonna go to the bank for a short-term interest loan to build a house, they have to pass that off to the cost of the house, and then they get caught in the middle of building that house with an increase in that rate. There went their profit. So why put yourself in risk <laughs> to do that? Well, I think, I think you just hit the nail on the head, and I think, frankly, that that's one of the central facts in the economy, if not the central fact. You know, in the in the uh, great global financial crisis, uh, it will put it in perspective. I think the 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 healthy, normal level of unsold homes in the economy right now would be about two million. But the actual inventory of unsold homes is only about 880,000. So you're exactly right. We have a dearth of homes available for sale. There ought to be more home building activity. It ought to be a more affordable thing for both builders and home buyers. In the global financial crisis, that number had reached four million. So we had two million excess homes, and that's why it took so long to recover from that. So, and interest rates have the most direct bearing on that activity. So, a little bit of relief there could go a long way. I want to come back, uh, Richard, just for a moment. Inflation. When we decided to take uh, energy and food out of the inflation equation, were we being intellectually honest? <laughs> I, you know, energy and food are, you know, core expenses for most folks that I know. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot of a lot of slicing and dicing of inflation that's done to try to make the number look better or try to get to some deeper truth. But, you know, food and energy are pretty central to most folks' lives. And, you know, unless you're a hermit, an ascetic or something. So, uh, yeah, I think inflation is what it is, and uh, uh, it's something we ought to pay a lot of attention to. So what do you think it really is? I mean, if, we, if you were to, from your experience, putting those two back into the equation, it certainly isn't 2 to 3%. What do you think it is? Well, I think it's fair to say that number is going to be bouncing around in the 3 to 4% range here for a while, you know, as we, as we parse through it. It, it dropped down to about 3.1% last August. For the last 14 months, it's averaged, uh, you know, in the low 3% range. There's a lot of moving parts, uh, but I think that's fair. And I, you know, it might creep up to a little higher than 4%, but I don't think uh, the situation is such that it's going to get much higher than that. Now, the wild card is energy prices, as you correctly pointed out. And you know, oil's back up to $95 a barrel. That's, you know, that's 
you know, a problem we've been fighting since the 70s, for crying out loud. And it's, you know, one that, I, you know, I'm a little bit embarrassed that we're still so beholden to Saudi Arabia and Russia for, you know, a central expense that our middle class has to deal with. Um, energy cost is the one equalizer threat, equal, I guess equal threat to anybody's wealth. I don't care how much money you have. Energy is the one thing that eats away at everybody, and it seems to be out of control. I think you're exactly right. You know, and I, you know, one of the one of the key factors right now for that is the Ukraine war, mm-hmm. which, you know, irrespective of your politics, uh, you know, Russia has a has a big lever there and war has been disrupt was disruptive to those supplies. And I don't think it's going to be easy to get out of this inner high energy cost trap uh, as long as that war continues. In your brain, uh, looking back, uh, previous administration, I'm not trying to be political here, but we were energy self-sufficient. Um, do you think we could return to that? Well, we got self-sufficient in aggregate, but we were still a net importer of oil specifically. We we made up that, you know, with uh, being a big or huge natural gas exporter, and that's why folks were able to say we were energy independent. I think energy is about as important a subject as you could have, and I think the things that we do ought to be such as to try to get us as energy dependent as possible. So you've seen recently a shutdown of exploration in a couple of areas. That doesn't help, you know. The, you know, and again, you know, I hate to get, I hate to get political myself, but uh, energy is pretty fundamental. I also think, and you know, a lot of folks disagree with me here. I also think that you know, developing alternatives to petroleum-based energy is an is a should be a priority, not for the reasons most folks say, but just to just to diversify our geopolitical risk. We should not be as dependent on uh, petroleum uh, uh, hydrocarbon-based energy as we are, and you know we. We suffered through that in the 1970s when I was a youngster, and we're still suffering through it today, and I, I, I wish we could move past that. All right, let me take a quick break. Uh, so honored to have with us uh, Richard Vegg. By the way, Richard, where can they get your book, The Paradox of Debt? Well, we have a site, paradoxofdebt.com. Okay. And as you already mentioned, I have a site, richardvegg.com. All right, and there's a picture of the cover of his book there, The Paradox of Debt. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. We'll be back to this week's interview in just a few seconds. In the meantime, we want to let you know that you can watch this interview, plus many more exclusive interviews that happen this week on the Dove's Daily TV and radio show by visiting our website, thedove.us. And while you're there, sign up for our free daily devotional, The Word for You Today. Three months of daily readings that will connect you with God's Word. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. And again, an honor to have with us today, Richard Vegg is the author of a fascinating read called The Paradox of Debt, uh, A New Path to Prosperity Without Crises. Uh, a couple of websites, The Paradox of Debt is a website and also his personal website, richardvegg.com. You can check that out as well. His credentials are amazing. Richard, again, thank you for your time. This is fascinating. Um, got a couple of other broad questions I want to ask you. 
Uh, as the number you shared with us earlier is pretty staggering. Uh, the private debt is 42 trillion. Uh, the national debt is 32 trillion. How are people on fixed income surviving this? Well, the Federal Reserve does a survey that um, asks whether folks could handle an unexpected $400 expense. And re regularly when they ask that question, you know, about half and sometimes more of the population says they could not, which is an absolutely amazing uh, statistic. Now, I want to put it a little bit in perspective here. We talked about $42 trillion in, in, in private sector debt. The net worth of households in the United States is actually $150 trillion. So, and that has grown really astronomically over the past 40 or 50 years. You know, the net worth of households has gone from, you know, 350% of GDP to almost 600% of GDP. So it's been one of the greatest wealth creation periods in world history. The problem is that almost all of that increase has gone to the top 10%. The middle class and certainly the lower group, their net worth to GDP is not increased at all. Uh, so yeah, it's a struggle and inequality is widening. It's uh, as widely reported by the Federal Reserve. Uh, the folks at the lower end of the spectrum are really having to struggle. I think it's one of the biggest issues we have and I think it shows up in our, our fraught politics. People do are having a hard time. So is Social Security secure or is it in trouble? <laughs> yeah, I, we, we study that a lot. I, I, I don't have the same level of concern about Social Security that others have. You know, it, our worst case is that we would just pay as we go uh, and the adjustments wouldn't have to be that big. I know it's, it's something that politicians uh, talk about a lot. I think a couple of simple changes in Social Security such as you know, charging it uh, to folks with high salaries. You know, right now you don't have to pay Social Security above a certain percentage of your salary. So the wealthiest don't really pay a proportionate amount of their income into Social Security. There's a there's a few changes that could that could fix that. Uh, you know, it's an issue. I don't view it as the huge issue. Some do. Um, this is so fascinating. Um, one of the things that's interesting to me is is that since COVID, uh, where the government was giving away a lot of money, uh, we employers, even today, can't find people to work. And I'm trying to figure out this compared to the employment numbers. What, what part of this equation am I missing? Well, I think one of the biggest parts of it is simple demographics. You know, we... For several decades now, the U.S. Haven't, hasn't been having as many children per family as we did in the past. So population growth is slowing down and the population is aging. And you know, I think we used to have a whole lot of young workers coming on stream every year out of high school and college, and we, we just don't have nearly as robust a, a, a development there as we used to have. And, we're gonna to have to change our mindset and start training folks in their 40s and 50s and 60s to adopt to the kind of the new world and the new job skills that are necessary. I think it's a big issue. And by the way, 
It's a bit of an issue in the U.S. It's a gargantuan issue in places like Germany and Spain and Russia and China, where they're seeing an absolute collapse in their demographics. Um, what was your view uh, during COVID of stimulus money being handed out? Well, any, you know, in my, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a historian. So anytime you have a large scale, uh, you know, operation have to be stood up quickly, you have a lot of problems, you have fraud, you have errors. Uh, you know, that happened when we got ready for World War II quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, there are any number of problems, but we ended up okay. We certainly had, you know, I was in the middle of it as a banker and a bank regulator. I was deeply involved in PPP where, you know, there were any number of problems. But I think generally we did, we get pretty good marks for that. And I think there's a couple of things you can look at as testimony to that. One of them is our GDP now, which is approaching 26 trillion, and it was about 20 trillion before COVID, is right where it would have been if COVID had never happened. And I think that's testimony to the effectiveness, at least to some extent of that activity. And in that respect, we're doing better than a lot of other Western economies that work you know, as aggressive as we were, and then still haven't gotten back onto what I would call the trend line there. The other thing I'd tell you is, you know, the government spent $8 trillion in that three-year period, 2021 and 22, $8 trillion. Household wealth in that same three-year period increased by $30 trillion, $30 trillion. The $8 trillion the government spent doesn't disappear. This is something most folks don't really think about, but money doesn't disappear when you spend it. In the case of government spending, it goes into household checking accounts. So households' checking accounts got $8 trillion you know, thicker or bigger, and the flood of money into the economy pushed stocks and real estates up by another $20 trillion. So in that respect, we've I don't think we've ever seen a wealth creation period as great as that three-year period. Again, most of that went to the to already wealthy, but uh, nevertheless, that's the data. Interesting. Um, what is your take, Richard, of minimum wages going where they are? As you know, California just passed a bill that uh, fast food people are going to have to be paid $20 an hour. Um, I mean, I'm trying to equate this out. What's your, what's your thinking on that? Well, minimum wage is one of those very, you know, those lightning rods. There's a lot of folks that insist we have to have it. There's a lot of folks that say it'll destroy, um, you know, it'll hurt small business and the like. You know, I definitely think it's more of a regional question than a national question because different regions have different wage scales and different economies. I'm kind of in the middle on this one. I, I, I think there's a lot of pluses and minuses on both sides. Um, but, you know, you know, either way it goes, I think we'll muddle through. Um, can people during this time of inflation and well, let me ask you this quickly. Do you think we're in recession or heading towards it? I think we're going to have, you know, at worst, a mild recession at at probably just a little bit of a slowdown. Okay. Can people make money 
indebtedness and increase their wealth? Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. I think, you know, the continued growth in debt pushes up asset values and folks that invest in stocks and real estate still have the opportunity for gains. You know, I'm not saying those gains will come in a month or a quarter or even a year, but if you're talking about a five or 10 year horizon, you know, I think there's still a plenty of opportunity. And you mentioned what I think is the most important statistic early on in our discussion, which is, I think the core fact in any economy, not just the United States, any, is the housing market. It's the biggest single sector in the debt markets. It's the bigger, biggest component of the economy. And right now, the fact that we have an undersupply of homes creates kind of a floor you know, in, in how bad it can get. It can't get too bad because we need to build more homes. And as long as the real estate industry uh, can chug along, uh, we'll be at least, we'll at least see some growth. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just looking at it in our own backyard. But so the question that would come out of that, Richard, would be um, in order to, to solve the housing problem, if I can put it that way, is we're going to have to lower the rates. Do you think that's in our future? I do. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm real. I'm discouraged by the Federal Reserve talk of you know, higher for longer. Um, but I think within maybe a two to three year horizon, we're going to see uh, rates back down. You know, a couple of hundred basis points, most likely. One of the reasons is the global economy itself is softening. You know, we're. I'm more optimistic about U.S. Uh, growth than almost anywhere in the world. China's growth is decelerating. That They'll export deflation as a result. Uh, Europe is seeing a lot of problems in a lot of areas. So, you know, I, I don't think we're going to have the kind of economic growth that justifies higher rates. So I would think within two to three years, we'll see rates back down somewhat. It's interesting you'd say that because I've been tracking China, Russia, Iran, Brazil, just to name a few. Maybe you could throw in there North Korea. And their personal economies are in shambles. Well, you got that right. You know, China has more problems than just about anybody in the world right now. Certainly, any major economy. They, 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 they have the opposite problem in housing that we have in, you know, on steroids. Right. They have, right. you know, over a hundred million empty dwellings. And, you know, that's more dwellings than exist in almost any other country. And, you know, some folks put the estimate at way above 100 million uh, empty dwellings. They have debt levels. You know, our private sector debt is 160, 170 percent of GDP. Theirs is about 210 percent of GDP. They've got problems everywhere. And, and by the way, you know, our, our population growth is slowing down. Their population growth is actually negative. So wherever you look in China, it, it, the problems are daunting. Yeah. You're fascinating. Look, to get you back, let me see to our viewers and listeners, check out Richard's book called The uh, Paradox of Debt. Uh, there, a picture of the, uh, the cover of the book on the screen, and that also has a website, The Paradox of Debt. You can check that out, or his personal website, richardvague.com. Richard, you're fascinating. Can we get you back? You know, it's such an honor to be with you. It'd be an absolute privilege to come back. All right, we'll, we'll do that. Have a great day, friend. God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Focus Today podcast. Remember, 
You can visit our website to check out all the interviews we did this week on our daily Focus Today TV show at thedove.us. And if you like this podcast, please take a moment to rate us and share it with your friends.